<laughs> He's Tweedledee, I'm Tweedledum. <laughs> Technology is a fickle mistress. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful to have you all here tonight. Thank you all for being here uh, for this, um, this teaching time that we're going to have over the next five weeks. We appreciate Pete being here. And we want to start out with a time of worship. We have a, we're going to have a, a sort of a concophony of, uh, of music colliding. They're supposed to have theirs off now, actually 10 minutes ago. Um, and um, we'll see how that works out. But um, any case, I think that we could, we could sing over them. And if we do good enough, we'll open the door and sing them out. <laughs> so... As we get started here tonight, Gordon has some songs for us to get started with, and uh, let's start with prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to be together to hear uh, the exposition of your scriptures uh, and into issues that, that we face uh, on a regular uh, basis ourselves, um, but is also true of the church globally. And so, God, our prayer is that you might... Um, bless us, teach us, and uh, help us, God, to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it's uh, in his name that we make our prayer. Amen. Gordon. Well, I don't know if uh, we can do this, but I know that I can play louder than they, than they can play on the drums, so uh, we'll do that. 43, if you got a hymn book there. I'm not sure my mic, is my mic working? Yeah, you, you can hear it? Okay. Test, 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 test. Okay, I think it is. Good. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's stand. Forty-three. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Sing it out now. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. I wonder if I could switch mics with Surely. you. Mine's too loud. His is too quiet. There, I think. Is that better? Okay. All right. All right. The second verse. Summer and winter. Here we go. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest. Sun, moon, and stars in their courses. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, 
72, and then we'll let the good doctor speak. 72, please. We will glorify the King of Kings. We will glorify the King of Kings. We will glorify the Lamb. We will glorify the Lord of Lords is the great I am. Lord Jehovah reigns in majesty. We will bow before his throne. We will worship him in righteousness. We will worship him alone. He is Lord of heaven, Lord of earth. He is Lord of all. Lord above the universe, all praise to him we give. Hallelujah, hallelujah to the King of kings, hallelujah to the Lamb, hallelujah to the Lord of lords, who is the great I am. Hallelujah, one more time. Hallelujah to the King of Kings. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Hallelujah to the Lord of Lords, who is the Great Lamb. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, after great singing like that, we ought to just go home. It can't get any better than that, right? But if you're motivated to stay, we'll continue. Uh, if you turn your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to ask our good reverend to come up and read for us Revelation 1. Would you do that for us? We want to hear your voice tonight. Read this great chapter. He has lots of pep. He's only preached twice today. Go ahead. 
I, it's, I think it's in the Apocrypha. <laughs> Revelation 1. Let's hear it loud and clear. Okay. Okay, the Word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to the servants the things that must soon take place. He made, it, he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, uh, who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and uh, every eye will see him, even those who are, uh, who are pierced. <laughs> I, got, I need to get bigger eyes here. <laughs> okay, here I go. Well, hang on a second. I'm, I'm finding my way around here. Tell me what verse I was on. Seven. Okay, thank you very much. I'm getting there. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, was, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ, was on the isle called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord. Uh, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like uh, a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So ends the reading. Thank you very much. There is 
Not another piece of uh, writing in all the world like Revelation, and Revelation 1 enters uh, into the presence of Almighty God in a very unique way. The risen Christ manifests himself to John, and he is on a prison aisle, Patmos. I used to go to a camp when I was a young kid called Camp Patmos. It felt like prison to me, too. <laughs> My kid, mom and dad sent me away for a week or two to get rid of me. But through the years, I've come to realize what a blessing it was to learn about this place called Patmos, a, a place where John was exiled. But just like you find in Psalm 57, do you remember the psalm that David sings when he's hiding in the cave from Saul? It says a psalm from the cave when he was hiding from Saul. It's where he says, Lord, you are the one who's praised by all the nations. And that's what happens in this wonderful book. John is exiled. He's in a cave, and we'll talk more about that later. And he sees the glory of the Lord over all the earth. Now, when we look at our title here, The Seven Churches of the Apocalypse, these are the seven churches we've heard just referred to in Revelation 1. We'll find that the next two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, are the letters that come from the risen Christ to these churches. Now, I've tried to summarize what I think is going on with the subtitle. It's a little bit long, but I think it's accurate, so follow with me. The risen Christ's letters to encourage Christians to spiritual victory in the perpetual challenges confronting churches. And there is that word perpetual. I want you to keep that in mind, that what was going on back then was not unique to those churches, but they are issues that confront the church, all churches, all throughout the world, all throughout time, and that Christ understood this, and he chose in his grace to communicate a message that was designed to encourage the churches to be overcomers, to be victors. As we read in Romans chapter 8, more than conquerors. And so as we look at this uh, study, I want to thank my uh, dear brother in Christ, uh, Pastor John, for allowing me to spend these five Sunday nights studying one of my favorite parts of the Bible. What a privilege, so thank you for the honor to do this. As we look at this section, we want to begin by a lot of background material to kind of appreciate where we're at. So there's some important places for us in the New Testament. Is my map showing up there? Okay. So you can see the big red dot. We all know Jerusalem. So we're by the Mediterranean Sea. And you know the far eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea is where Israel is found. Jerusalem, as you go directly north to where the Mediterranean turns west, that's the place called Antioch. It's in this place where the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. This is our city. Jerusalem is our city too. But Christians officially became known as Christians by the people of Antioch. So you're a bunch of Christians, of Messiah followers, followers of the Anointed One. And you can see how Asia Minor continues on, and that would be modern-day Turkey. And as you go westerly, you can see those dots, and those are the places where these seven churches in what we call Asia Minor the uh, place that they're there. And as you go across what is the Aegean Sea, you then see Greece coming down. And the Greece, Corinth is actually on the wrong side of the strait there, but that's the place where the Isthmus is and where the 
canal has been carved into, into Greece. So in our mind's eye, geography matters. We're going to see it has some significance. So we want to see where it is. Now further, as we think about it, let's remember the, the broader work of the Apostle Paul. Paul in his ministry wrote to seven distinct churches. Now he wrote 13 epistles. Some of them are to people and there are some that are duplicates or let's, let more than one letter to one church. But from the east to the west, Galatia to Rome, remember those are the epistles of justification. They're the ones that talk about what we heard in our message this morning. The just are right with God by faith plus nothing else. That's the theme of Galatians to Romans. Now in the center here, uh, we have Philippi to the north. That's the city where Paul has his most intimate uh, message, the church born in a prison cell. It's the place where Christianity comes for the first time to Europe. So if you have European ancestry, this is the Christian spiritual beginning of the gospel. You remember the Macedonian call? Paul wanted to go easterly, farther into Asia, and the Holy Spirit forbade him. And in the night he had this vision of a man in Macedonia, come over and help us. And he hears that and he goes. He goes to Philippi. And you remember it's there that he looks for followers of the I Am. And he can't find even a synagogue. So he goes to the river thinking there might be a place of prayer. And he meets a lady. Does anybody remember her name? Lydia. Do you know where Lydia got her name? from this part of Turkey that we're looking at. That was in the ancient world, was called Lydia. She was actually named for the region she came from. Lydia, it was like uh, if you had a child that was born in North Carolina and you decided to call her Caroline or Charlotte. I know one family that called their daughter uh, Charlotte because she was born in Charlotte. And uh, her dad said, it's a good thing you were not born in Poughkeepsie. Just think going around, hey, pokey, it would have been interesting. Okay, the seven, isn't it interesting? Seven cities are in Paul's writings. We're going to see this number seven begins to have some importance. Now, this is in French because we have highly educated people here tonight. But this was the only map I could find that actually noted that if you look at these seven cities, you notice how uh, right at the bottom it has Ephesus, and you go north, you see Smyrna. You go north, you see Pergamum. And then you start southeasterly. You got Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And then can you see that little dot right next to it? Colossae. Have you ever heard of the epistle of the Colossians? Okay. So Ephesus and Colossians are the two of the cities that Paul wrote to. Okay, the Colossians and Ephesians, they're very similar letters, although they are distinct, but they share some common themes. Now, what's interesting is that uh, those two cities that are here are now going to be touched in a slightly different way by the letters that Christ sends. Ephesus, interestingly, is a city that Paul wrote an epistle to and that Christ wrote an epistle to. Laodicea, is near Colossae, but they're different. We'll come back to that in a little bit. So you're starting to get the idea of the geography. Look again now. If we look at how the topography is, you can see that geography determines where these cities will end up. So you can see that Ephesus is right in a place where it's right near the sea, 
where there are rivers coming through valleys. The green represents, uh, if you will, valleys. The brownish color are mountains. And you can see that these cities then are strategically placed. They are on the communication routes, uh, trade areas that would go back and forth. And so uh, the ability to communicate between them would be through the road structures that would have been built. As we continue to look at this, remember now these seven churches are in the time of the Roman Empire. The coin here is a coin representing Domitian, one of the great uh, Roman emperors uh, that will bring persecution over time against the churches. So as we begin to think about these seven churches, what are some of the things that we should keep in mind? Now we look more carefully. They are seven in number, and they are numbered here. And you notice then how they go in a particular geographical pattern. It starts at Ephesus, it goes north to Smyrna, it goes north to Pergamum, and then it begins to turn south. And it goes uh, then to the churches of Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia, and then finally to Laodicea. So the way in which the letters are written are geographically ordered, a north and then a south easterly direction. They are the seven letters. Now, as we continue to think about that, we might say, why is seven so important? Well, there is a significance that we find in the Bible and in the book of Revelation. For example, uh, we can think of seven days of creation, the idea that the full work of God in creating was done in the space of seven creative days. Secondly, when you look at the lampstand in the temple, it has seven candles or lights or lamps that connect it. And so the idea is that there is a perfect light, just like there's a perfect week of working. Uh, we can think of the Messiah when he's described in Isaiah 61. There are seven ministries that are going to come from his gracious work. Uh, we find seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Remember Peter's question, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? The Lord says, no, 70 times seven. The number seven keeps coming up. In fact, we notice that Paul's epistles were written to seven cities. Well, this theme of seven, which represents completion or perhaps perfection, is now especially significant in the book of Revelation, what we call the apocalypse. The word apocalypse is a word that means to reveal something. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But if you look at the book of Revelation, you'll find, as we were heard in chapter 1, seven stars, seven angels, seven spirits, seven candlestands, seven churches. There's seven letters. And as you read through the book, you'll find seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven benedictions are sprinkled throughout the book. And when you look at the eschatology, the final ending of the book, there are seven last things. The number seven comes to its perfect meaning in this book of completion or perfection. And so when you think about that significance, why are seven churches and seven letters identified to have seven angels and seven lampstands? Because this number represents a perfect sampling of what the church is like throughout history. It describes what all the churches need to wrestle with. The symbolism and significance should not be lost. Now, we continue on. John the Apostle is on the Isle of Patmos, 
And he has an epiphany of the risen Christ, a manifestation of the glory of Jesus. What are some of the things that we see here? First of all, we said Patmos is about 40 miles west of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. There's no way to get off of it unless you are able to get a boat to the mainland. He is there a captive. There's a cave on that island. I, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to do a tour of the Aegean and to the travels of Paul and some of the churches of Asia Minor, but there's only one cave on the island. And the, the tradition says that was the cave where John lived when he was in exile on that prison island. And there happens to be in there a very large flat rock. It's a perfect writing surface. And it's called the Desk of St. John. And it's the place where, according to tradition, he wrote down the vision and the message that we know as the book of Revelation. From the cave, he sees this extraordinary image of the glory of God and of the glory of Christ. And I mentioned Psalm 57. His visions are given a structure in the verse that we heard read. Chapter 1 and verse 19, what you have seen, what is, and what will be hereafter. This is as becomes the structure of his whole book. What you have seen. What had he seen? This glorious image of Christ where he falls down nearly dead. Then he is to write what is the next two chapters. What is going on in the churches. And then what is to be hereafter. From chapters 4 to the end, he'll begin to give the vision of what God is planning to do in the future. Okay? What we see then, then, is this book is a revelation, a revealing of what is hidden. If you try to capture the idea of a revelation, a good image is to think of being at a, uh, a play, and you are watching the curtain while you're looking, and you don't know what's going to be. The play is a brand new opening. You've never seen the set. You don't know what's going to happen. You know something's there, but it's not visible. It's hidden. It's unknown. And then... The curtains open up, and all of a sudden, the lights and the sounds and the people all come bombarding at you. That's a revelation. It is an unveiling of what we cannot see unless someone opens the curtains that keep us from knowing it. Would you notice that this book called the Revelation is singular, not plural? So I had one seminary professor he always knew whether the person was a good Bible student when they'd ask a question. Could you please tell me how you interpret the revelations? And he would just properly say, well, I see you're really new to the book. It's only singular revelation. And he said it with a very uh, polite uh, Southern uh, Carolina accent, very distinguished. He would put you in your place. Now, the point of revelation is that it is one whole unveiling of Christ. There are many visions, many experiences, but it is one whole message of Christ seen in his glory. So the book is singular. Okay, John the Apostle has seen this vision, and the vision that he gets is going to be something that will continue to show up throughout this book, and especially in these seven letters that we're going to look at. So what he has seen is going to impact what he says to what is. The chapters 2 and 3 will incorporate a great deal of that vision into their message. Now, let's take a quick minute and get some more background. Now, as we think about uh, the, the seven churches of Asia Minor, we've noticed that their order is 
in geographical order, a road going north and then southeast. And as we begin, why would Ephesus be first? Well, obviously, it's the closest city that John could get a letter to if it escapes the prison island. It would have been the closest to cross the water, and that would have been the landing point. It was the biggest city of the day. Ephesus is a key place in Paul's ministry, as we see in Acts. And John's letter would have been there first from Patmos. Secondly, Smyrna, the, the next city north, that we maybe 40 to 60 miles north, uh, it was often considered the most beautiful city of Asia Minor. It was one of the older capitals, and it had a breeze that came off of it, and the name of it you probably have heard. Have you ever heard of a zephyr? That was the name of actually the breeze that always blew across Smyrna, is the zephyr, the breeze off of the uh, Aegean Sea. So it was the air-conditioned city by nature in the very hot Mediterranean climate. Smyrna, interesting, also is the Greek word for the word incense. Do you remember the three gifts of the Magi? Smyrna is what Christ received. It means incense. So you think about it, a city called incense with a zephyr blowing. Sounds like a nice place to live, doesn't it? Okay, a beautiful city. And uh, Pergamum, this was the seat of the imperial power. Pergamum would have been very much under the Roman leadership. And you remember at this time, one of the great issues was you had to say, Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't say Caesar is Lord, it could cost you your life. And what did Christians declare? Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So this is going to be a point of tremendous tension for a church to be faithful in this place. The famous symbol of Asclepius for doctors comes from here. Do we have any physicians here who are willing to admit it? Tonight we might be looking for free medical care here. Okay. Asclepius. Remember the medical image of the snakes around the staff? This is where it comes from, this place. Okay. Uh, the serpent was viewed as a very smart creature that could go underground and come seemingly dead and come back to life. becomes a symbol. Now, whether there was any connection with the mosaic story in the wilderness, that's not able to be established. But that's part of it. They actually had a very major medical system that had developed there. Uh, in fact, the word parchment actually comes from the word pergamum. You can actually hear the pergamum, parchment, it's kind of the same word. So papyri, we know the word papyri, it comes into the, our language as paper. And Pergamum comes into our language as parchment. What's the difference? Papyri is made of reeds that are kind of pressed together, just plant material. Parchment is made from animal skins that are dried and prepared in a proper way. Instead of having then rolls of uh, scrolls that are made, you begin to have pages that are leafed together. So the idea of a book with parchment pages actually develops in Pergamum. It's a center of imperial power, a place of intellectual authority. So we continue with the next four cities. These are now beginning to turn south uh, easterly. The next city is Thyatira, which is the city of Lydia, the first to be converted in Philippi when Paul, in obedience to the Macedonian call in his vision, brought the gospel to Europe, which we find in Acts 16. We mentioned Lydia got her name from the region that was once called Lydia, and what's interesting now, as you think about the story, 
is that she was a seller of purple. And you remember that purple has for ages been considered a royal kingly color. And the reason for that is that in the ancient world, there was no ability to make the color purple as a dye. The only way that they had found to make a permanent purple was through the body fluid of a mollusk that was crushed. And when they would get that mollusk and crush it, it would give you one drop of purple dye. So can you imagine how many you would have to crush and find and to work into clothing to make a purple garment? That's why only kings could afford it. When you uh, walked in and you had a purple strand through your clothes, it was kind of like driving up in a Mercedes. You know, hey, I've got some money here, you know, you just won't look at me. So it uh, it was a symbol of royalty. Lydia was a wealthy lady from Thyatira doing her work of purple color. So you can see the background, and she becomes the place that Paul operates from. Now the city of Sardis. So we have Pergamum, we have Thyatira, now we come to Sardis. Sardis was a city with a great past, but it had long outlived its prime. It was the former capital of this region called Lydia, and it was once considered an impregnable fortress of a city because it was on a very high place. There was an acropolis on the top with very imposing walls, and it seemed like no one could conquer it. But in its past, it just so happened that some very... Uh, clever and uh, powerful soldiers came up by night up the cliff and found a breach in the wall and overthrew the city by a surprise attack. It's interesting that the letter that Jesus will write to this church says, be careful, I will come like a thief in the night. That would have had a little extra ring in that city because they knew exactly what had happened in their past, a city conquered by those that came in the night. Okay, Philadelphia. All right, now this is my city where Westminster comes from. Now there's a great story here. That this, we have, okay, uh, up here in the north, Pergamum. We have Thyatira, Sardis. Now we're coming down to Philadelphia. Philadelphia, as you know, means brotherly love. When you come to Philadelphia, you'll find the city of brotherly shove. But it is the city of brotherly love in name. Philos means love, like philosophy, philately, philanthropy, right? Adelphos means brother. And so Penn chose the name for the city for two reasons. One, it actually is a Christian virtue. You can find it in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. It talks about brotherly love as one of the Christian virtues. We're to love each other as a family. But you can find it also in the very story of how the city was named. The king of Pergamum, realized that he had a younger brother that was the heir to his throne. Now, if you know anything about dynastic leadership, the greatest danger that often exists for the king is this next younger brother. Because if the king happens to fall off of his horse at an inconvenient time and falls down the cliff, guess who becomes king? So he always had to keep an eye on, where's my brother right now? Where, where's his bodyguards? Where are they at? Well, it just so happened this younger brother was extraordinarily loyal to his older brother. So much so uh, that the king said, I want to honor you. And he built a city and named it Brother's Love. That's a true story. Isn't that amazing? Now, after his older brother dies of natural causes, he did become king. 
But he left the story of brotherly love there as a symbol of what a real family could look like. It becomes a Christian virtue. And also, Reverend William Penn, the great Quaker preacher who established his city, chose that name as his own for his capital city. So, uh, a minister of the gospel established Philadelphia. Why is Philadelphia called it by that name? Because he wanted it to be a place where people with different, deeply held religious convictions could still live side by side, respecting each other's consciences. It would be a place of religious liberty and conscience. Okay? So, now Laodicea. You all know Laodicea because it's the city that's described by Jesus as the place where he would spew them out of his mouth because they were neither hot nor cold. That's a powerful image, isn't it? Lukewarm. Uh, they, they had no vitality. So if you're really cold, you love to drink a hot cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea. And if you're really hot, you'd love to drink an ice-cold cup of, of something or fresh, cold spring water. Lukewarm is kind of hard to deal with, although you'll drink it if you're thirsty, but it's not going to be your preference. And that image is taken because Laodicea was a place in which there were hot springs that were flowing. This is very vivid in my mind. In one of my recent trips to uh, Indonesia, I was on the island of Ambo, and I'll tell you about this uh, in another one of my lessons. But I, was, I love to go to volcanoes. I've climbed a number of volcanoes through the years, and uh, this uh, volcano that had exploded had some smaller uh, of their calderas, and this one actually still had a stream flowing into it where there was hot bubbling water coming out. So for lunch that day, I actually had a hard-boiled egg boiled in a volcano hot spring. And then, they, and then as the water came down, there was a nice mud bath, which I didn't get in, but they said, this is a great place. You could feel like a natural jacuzzi. I thought about doing it, but I wondered if they could really control the temperature enough. You know, I was getting worried about it. But then there was another one farther down, and it was just tepid and almost room temperature. It's cooling down. And that's the image. Laodicea had, could have had hot. It had cool springs, but it also had lukewarm springs. And the church had become so content with itself, with its success, its business work, its medical salve, its black wool business, being right in the center of one of the great trade routes, that they had no interest in anything else except just being what they are. We're just good enough. And so Laodicea then becomes the seventh church in the list. Now, as we look at these, I've described this. It has been a powerful approach to interpreting these cities where people have said, well, you know what? They're not just cities. They actually represent the great span of church history. That what we should actually see is that the ancient church begins, if you will, with Ephesus, the apostolic era, and then Smyrna, because it will be a place where persecution is met, will be mentioned. Well, it's then the era of persecution of the church. And then Pergamum, it'll be the place of when there's an official adopting of the church by Constantine, and there is a compromise with the world. And then when things really get out of hand, it's the Middle Ages. And then finally you come to Sardis, and well, that's the Protestant Reformation. 
And then Philadelphia, while it's a weak church, it has an open door. So it's the era of great missions and Laodicea, the lukewarmness. That's the age of modernism. Well, that's a nice idea, but do you know what Sardis is described at? We'll hopefully remember this when we study it together. It's the, called the dead church. I want you to know I have my doctoral studies in the Reformation, and the one word you cannot describe the church of the Reformation is dead. It is the time where the church was more alive than it has ever been in history since the apostolic age. It was more than the first great awakening in America. It was the first great awakening on steroids. That fact alone destroys this interpretation. And I would not be surprised if this has not been taught to you many, many times because it's very popular. But I'm going to take a very different approach. The seven churches of Asia Minor do not represent church history of one epoch after another. If it did, then we have to say the Reformation was a time when the church died. I have to tell you, it's a time when the church came alive. I won't go through the other possibilities, but that alone. So I'm going to give you this uh, quote from a great book worth having in your library. It's probably been printed about 40 times now since uh, Hendrickson wrote it many years ago. He's gone to heaven, a great Bible commentator. He writes in his book, More Than Conquerors, on page 75, the notion that these seven churches describe seven successive periods of church history hardly needs refutation to say nothing about the almost humorous if it were not so deplorable. Now, this man has an opinion, doesn't he? You can hear his words. Exegesis, which, for example, makes the church at Sardis, which was dead, refer to the glorious age of the Reformation. It should be clear to every student of the Bible that there is not one scintilla of evidence in all the sacred writings which in any way corroborates this thoroughly arbitrary method of cutting up the history of the church and assigning the resulting pieces to respective epistles of Revelation 2 and 3. And then he'll say this. Instead, the epistles describe conditions which occur not in one particular age of church history, but again and again. There's tremendous wisdom. All of these churches existed at the same time. They represented real challenges and issues. And they represent, if you will, the reality that all churches are going to confront no matter where they are. Remember the number seven, the perfect completeness? This is the perfect representative sample of what churches are going to have to deal with no matter where they are or when they are. And this is what Jesus is giving to us. So, I'm not going to tell you you can't hold to the idea of epics one after another. I just want you to know as a church historian, it doesn't work. But you can hold it if you want. I don't think it works biblically. What, what basis do we have for it? There's nothing in the text that says, by the way, these are epics of history. They are real churches with real issues. And they represent the concerns of Christ for his church in the world. And so I want us to think then that they are representative churches dealing with the perpetual challenges that the church faces in all the ages everywhere and it will be this way in a fallen world until the Lord returns and restores all things okay so now let's take another look we noted that Jesus is walking in Revelation 1 among the seven lampstands you see the lampstand this is the lampstand that would look like what was in the temple remember it had the seven lamps 
And so the idea there's seven churches in the Old Testament temple, one lampstand was seven. Now in Jesus' uh, image here, there are seven lampstands. Jesus is the new temple. Remember, destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. He's speaking of his body. He is the temple of God. We are in him, and he is now in the midst of his churches. What a beautiful image this is. These seven churches that are spread out in all of these different places we've looked at, Christ is in the middle of them, recognizing each of them are lampstands. What's a lampstand do? It holds up the light, but it is not the light. The churches, by their very image, are places where the light of Jesus Christ is held up. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And each of the churches then have the ability to lift up the light of Christ into a darkened world. And Jesus is in the midst of them. This is a spectacular image. And so the idea that Christ is walking in the midst of the churches and their candlestick, Jesus is walking in the midst of this church. He said, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. He not only said, that he is the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. And that's the thrilling thing of what we should capture. And I appreciate Pastor John when he says, our prayer is that you meet the living God when you come to worship. And you should, for he's here. When the word is preached and you sing and the Bible is open and you humble yourself before God, Jesus is here. That is the great claim. That's the great promise of Revelation 1. Jesus is walking in the midst of these lampstands, these churches. Now, one of the things I want you to note is the wonderful theology we have here. Uh, the risen Christ's bibliology and ecclesiology, that's a, a mouthful. But we shouldn't miss the theology that's woven into these passages. Well, you notice, if you will, there is a structure of authority that's in these letters. And they give us a design of what I think Christ wants for his church. The way he communicates to his churches. He's showing the way it ought to be everywhere. For every church of Christ. And that should raise the question, is it true in every church? So we begin with this. Notice Christ reveals. He unveils the things we cannot know as he opens heaven. And if you follow the chain as you read it in Revelation 1, there is God revealing his message to Christ the Son. And Christ through an angel, and remember the word angelos in Greek means a messenger. We get the word evangelical from that, meaning the good message. You're all supposed to be angels telling the good message, messengers, right? We're all angelic beings in that sense, bringing the good news. And so the God the Father to Christ the Son through the angelic messenger to John the Apostle in a dark cave, a penal exile, rejected by the culture, but God speaks to him. Isn't that magnificent? That is the truth of all of our lives when we open up the Scriptures. God the Father, through his Son, through the message that God gives his messenger, whatever medium, through the preacher, through the spirit within, through the written word, we confront the living God. Right? Christ to the Apostle John. So that revelation comes to John, and you notice now that John is going to be inspired. 
He will hear the voice of God. He will see the visions of God. He'll experience God. So the Lord reveals, and John is inspired. As a result of being inspired, he writes, and we say the inspired apostle gives us an inspired text. The writing itself now is governed by God himself through his spirit. The text becomes what we call canon, officially the measuring rod of what we should believe and act. It is sent authoritatively to be read. It's written, the inspired text. It is carried. We don't know who is the one who carried this wonderful apocalypse from Patmos to Ephesus for the first ones to read it. But someone did, and someone was faithful in doing that. We know Phoebe, for example, is the one who carried Paul's epistle to Rome. She gets the credit for being one of the deaconesses in the church. The faithful laboring of preserving the Word of God is a necessary link in the structure of authority. What do we hear about the Gideons, Mr. DeNoyer? 70,000? That's a lot of passing out. That's part of the chain of authority, getting the Word of God out. It's a beautiful thing. And when it's carried or transmitted, it is read. Hopefully you hear the Bible read every Sunday in your church. I know it's read here in this church. The churches are assembled for the public reading and Bible-based worship. This is the word that Christ wanted the church to have. So shouldn't the church be reading this so the people will hear it? If the Bible is not read, we are rejecting the very structure that Christ has put in place. And when it is brought, should it not be proclaimed and witnessed? In other words, do you think that the epistle came to Ephesus and it was read? They said, boy, we're sure not going to tell Laodicea about it because they're number seven. They're going to have to get it on their own. They're going to say, well, we're going to copy it. It's going to take a time. But guess what? Somebody ran all the way and said, guess what we've heard? Jesus has a letter coming for you. And you know what he said? He's so concerned about you. I mean, the word spread. And that's the way it still ought to be. We should be gossiping the gospel. When we get in a taxi and we're going somewhere, we ought to talk about Jesus to the taxi driver. When a waiter comes along and he looks miserable, you ought to say, I'm going to pray for my meal. Can I pray for you too? I love Jesus. When we care for somebody and do a ministry, you ought to say, you know, I, I do this because Jesus told me to love my neighbor. I want to show you the love of Christ. Everything we do can be witnessing and transmitting the gospel. It's part of the structure that we should be doing. The proclamation witness. Yes, and someone had to copy it. It was painstakingly difficult in that day when you took a quill and pen and you had to write on papyri or parchment and then try to get it passed one at a time. I could imagine that... I'd, whoever the one who brought the message to Ephesus said, okay, we're going to have to get at least seven people copying. I'll do one and then we'll get two more copying. We'll get a few more copying. We've got to get this out to everybody. Copying, transmission, publishing. That's part of the structure. These things are not secrets. They're to be spread. And then there comes the hearing that we are to do, which has a theological word. It's when you really hear at the end of these letters. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Everyone, even though it's written to the church, is to hear it individually. He that has, we all have ears. No, we don't. We have physical ears, but we don't have spiritual ears. Can we hear the living God speaking to us and say, yes, 
That's my master's voice. I hear him. And when we hear it, that's because the word has brought regeneration, a new birth in our heart. And the spirit has brought illumination. It's given our minds the ability to understand a message that is not natural. And then, I'm sorry it's been contracted a little bit. I think at the bottom, you should see there, the Spirit and the Word. It's fascinating how we find, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit. And yet, you are reading a written text. God's Word and His Holy Spirit are inextricably united. The Word and Spirit come together. You never have one without the other when you have the pattern of authority that God gives. That's why we preach the Word in season and out of season. Because when we preach the Word, it has the promise of the Holy Spirit's power working through it in spite of the frailty and weakness of the minister. It is God's Word that is powerful. I had the opportunity in one of my recent travels, for believe this or not, the world's largest Reformation celebration. We celebrated the Reformation here, right? We had a couple of things we did together. It was actually in Jakarta, Indonesia in November of 2017. Uh, there were uh, something like 8,000 people that gathered. There were speakers from all over the world. I got to be one of them. I got to hear Sinclair Ferguson speak there, and he said something that he said he learned from one of his Bible teachers. I want to repeat it because I think it's good. He said, the Word and the Spirit, they're here together. And he said, if you have the Word without the Spirit, you're going to dry up. If you have the Spirit without the Word, you're going to blow up. And if you have the Word with the Spirit, you're going to grow up. And that's what God wants for us to see is that in the letters that come from Christ, the risen Christ writing to his church, he said, word, yes, this text, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is speaking through this inspired word. He's speaking inside you through regeneration, the new birth. He's speaking inside you through his illumination so that you hear it. And his word is bringing this living message the living Christ meets us in His Word. Isn't this an extraordinary pattern of authority? This is how heaven from Christ sets it up. I think it's a great grid for us to ask any of the congregations or churches or ministries we're part of, do we see this pattern in place? If we don't, we should be deeply concerned because this is how our risen Lord says it ought to be. Do you know what? He does this seven times. This is his structure. This is what he puts in place with each of his letters. Okay. Now notice another thing we had to learn, some more theology. I want you to see that the church, as we study it, as for our own benefit, before we begin to do further things, this is all part of our background understanding. I got five classes to do this in, so we can take our time. I want you to see that the church has three qualities that we learn from this passage. It's connectional in nature. It is not an individualistic, all-by-itself city-state. The churches are connected with other churches. Secondly, the church itself is a corporation, a corporate body. It is connected. And this connectionalism that's broader with each of the 
corporate bodies of the local church take seriously the role of the individual in each of those churches. So philosophers talk about the problem of the one and the many. Jesus puts it all together. It's the whole. It's the local. And it's the individual. And they're all important. And they're all connected. Everything is bound together. So what do we learn about the connectional character? Well, each church gets all the letters. Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't say, okay, write this one only to Ephesus and write confidential on it. Okay, write this one to Laodicea and say, oh, no, no. Okay, well, let Smyrna see this one too. But no, everybody gets all the letters. Why? Because we're connected with each other. What goes on over there goes on here. Now, I don't know if you like Martin Luther King or not, but, you know, he said something very powerful. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are living in a seamless fabric of life. One part in one place is connected to another. And that's, that is a Christian understanding of the church. We're bound together whether we like it or not. We are all part of the body of Christ. We are all connected. They all get the letters. All the churches are called to hear what is said to all the churches. The call, hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. Every, you're supposed to hear it all. Say, oh, I don't have to. Oh, he's reading the section from Thyatira. I don't have to. I can sleep now because I'm in Ephesus and that's, you know, I got to pay attention. It's to me too. It's part of my life. I hear what's all. And they are all from a common region. I know what we heard this morning. 40% of you are Presbyterians, maybe even less than an evening service. Presbyterians don't go to evening services probably. So 90% of you are probably non-Presbyterian. Okay, John, I don't know what your informal study shows, but we'll work that out later, right? All right, but they're all in a common region. Well, Presbyterians call that a presbytery, the gathering of elders in a common area for the common work of the church. So we care about others. We're connected. We relate. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, can I say this at least with a small p, he's pro-Presbyterian. Did you know that there are going to be some elders in heaven? Talks about the 24 elders. There's at least 24 of us that are going to make it there. Now, those are the heavenly elders, the presbyters, but that's another thing. Okay. All right. So notice then there what's a little subtle distinction. And you may not see this, but when you read the seven letters, notice there is the reversal of the order of the exhortation to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and then the promise that's given to the church. So for the first three, it goes in one way, one order, but then in the last four, it reverses it. And I think, and I'll try to explain this more fully when we're looking at it, it's because Jesus realized that by the time three churches had already gotten this message, all the others have heard about it too. So they're anticipating, because they knew they'd be talking to each other. So the reason the order is reversed, it makes sense, because that's what connectional churches do. The word gets out to everybody, because we all care about each other. We're in this together. So the idea of a connectional church is part of what's here. Uh, notice uh, Jesus is the temple, and all the candle stands are there in his presence, and he with them. They're each different, but they're united, shining the common light of the gospel to the world. So one of the things we ought to ask ourselves is, is it kind of like, I only care about me and nobody else. I only care about my church, I don't care about you. We are in this together, and that is that strength of a common body, the brotherhood of the saints. Okay, 
Notice not only is there a connectional character, but there is a local corporate character, each church. The letters are written to the U plural. So as the people are described, each of them are identified, you. But there's still an individual angel that gets the letter. Now the question here is, who is the angel? Uh, some would say that's a heavenly being. Some would say that that's actually the minister. We can call angelic John Anderson as your leader, right? It could be the moderator of the presbytery. But there's someone who's the messenger. Each one has one. And there's each in an individual city. Each has unique blessings, needs, challenges, and direct messages. And yet the individual's not swallowed up. It's fascinating. I, I love Revelation 3.20. Jesus is standing at the door of a church door. He's on the outside. That's pretty painful when you think about it. Jesus is outside and no one even noticed he's outside. He's knocking on the door. He said, you know, I'd really like to come in. This is supposed to be my church. Jesus is now on the outside knocking. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will sup with him and he with me. Maybe the whole church won't welcome me, but the one who welcomes me, I will come into him. The vast corporate character and even vaster connectional character never diminishes the blessing of one's unique relationship with the living Christ. The individual is not swallowed up in the whole. That means you matter right now as you are with your life, with your challenges. It says he knows the days of every one of your lives. Not a hair can fall from your head apart from him knowing it. He changes the count every time you brush your hair. Isn't that amazing? This is the church of Jesus that we're talking about. Okay, I'm just getting warmed up, John. You said you're preaching an extra an hour because of the time change. I'm going for an extra 15. Can I do that? Okay. All right. So what we want to see is that as we come to these seven letters now, there is a common pattern. Interesting. Seven letters to seven churches, and each of the letters have seven parts. Do you see a theme going on here? This is what you need to know. It is perfect. It's complete. It's just right. You don't need more than this. This is just enough to do the job. Okay? Now, we're going to go through every one of these letters. Now, uh, tonight, we're not going to get to any letter. We've got to get the background so we can appreciate what we're going to study for the next few weeks. So we'll probably do two, 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 and one or something like that. You know, we'll double them up in the other studies. I have five shots at you, but... Uh, th this is the structure that we have here. Now, what I want you to think then, what are the seven types of churches identified in Revelation 2 and 3? Until I had lots of fun with my uh, PowerPoint here, trying to figure out a way to capture Ephesus. It is the Orthodox church that's lost its original zeal for Christ. See, it's hot going cold. Red to blue. Smyrna, it's the persecuted church. Big, bold, red letters there. There's no criticism of this church. Jesus says, you are just faithful. They're facing it all. They're, they're really extraordinary. Pergamum, well, they're dealing with hidden sexual sin in the middle of their church. They're lax on their standards. There's a dark heart in the middle of their witness. Thyatira is even worse. They've compromised with the world. They have the blackness of the world, the coolness of of uh, indifference, and a, maybe a little spark of godliness. 
And Sardis, it's the dead church. You can see it's sinking and going under, all dead, all black. And Philadelphia, it's so small. It's the weak church with an extraordinary open door. Remember those words? I open doors that no man can close, and I close doors that no man can open. You're weak, but you have a mighty God that opens the door. And great things can be done in spite of your weakness because you're faithful. This church is not criticized by Christ. Now, Laodicea, the self-focused and complacent church, blinded to its spiritual need. You look at Laodicea, it's hot and cold, lukewarm all the way through. It doesn't realize how crooked things are, miscapitalized. And for the O, it has a big fat zero because it has no spiritual life at all. So now, hopefully you design artists can help me out here. This is the best I could do trying to get at it. But I'm suggesting that what we are learning from these is that these are the kind of churches that we're going to find everywhere in the world at all times. And we need to do business with our heart and say, who are we? What needs to happen for the reformation, repentance in our church? So is this an Orthodox church but that's lost its original zeal for souls? Is this a church that's facing persecution but will not back down because of love for Christ? Is sexual sin being buried and hidden? Have we compromised with the world? Just that we're going to be like the world. Is this church dead? No longer any spiritual life, just forms and functions and liturgies, but no life. Is it a little church that sees an open door that can do great things for Christ? Is it a church that's complacent? We've done enough. We're okay. Don't mess with the status quo. Those are the kind of churches Jesus said we're going to see in the world. I want to remind you again, I'm, this I'm bolding what Hendrickson said earlier, the red. The epistles describe conditions which occur not in one particular age of church history, but again and again. I would argue that you could go through the church directory in any community and use this grid say, wow, this really kind of looks like who we are. We need to change. Now, I go through, and this is part of what our study is going to be, uh, and this is where I'm finally getting to what Pastor Anderson asked me to do. But I had to give you the background so I could do it. So John will come back and pick up next Sunday, right? Uh, these types of churches from the ancient world are replicated again and again throughout history. Who might these be today? then, if that's the case. Well, very quickly, the theologically orthodox churches that take the gospel for granted, losing its voice for truth as well as commitment for mission and evangelistic zeal for the lost. Could that be a lot of our evangelical and reformed churches? Theologically accurate. But we are not on fire for Christ. We're just, yeah, we do what we're supposed to do. and But we believe the right stuff confessionally sound, but passionless in the concern that people are lost and don't have a Savior, and we know what they need. The persecuted church. Uh, this is much of the global church. I'm going to look forward to telling you some stories about China, India, Indonesia, Africa, Muslim countries, even some examples in the U.S. How about the sexually impure church that doesn't discipline its members? Have you been reading about the Roman Catholic Church? the Southern Baptist Church in Houston, the, some of the mega and emergent churches and what are going on. 
How about this? The church that openly compromises with the world's standards, theology, and ethics are essentially gone from a biblical viewpoint. I hate to say this, but is this not what our mainline churches have essentially become? They look absolutely like the world. They just sing songs and talk about different things from the Bible. But being like the Bible, well, we would never do that. How about this? The dead church. It has the form, the functions, the liturgies, the buildings, but it's without life. Yes, there are many mainline churches like this, and perhaps the great European state churches, once powerful engines of evangelism and education and gospel ministry. Today, they're empty shells with hardly a witness at all. How about the weak and faithful church? Do we not find these in rural and urban settings? Do we not find gospel church planners going out boldly? Do we not see renewal movements around the globe saying, Oh Lord, send a revival. Let it begin with me. And how about the self-contented, self-focused, spiritually unaware church? Have you been following the prosperity gospel churches? All we care about is you have a happy life, your best life now. We'll never talk about sin or salvation or eternal destinies. What about the mega churches that are just making life convenient for everyone? Or the affluent suburban churches? Or the ministries of televangelists? You know, I think we've just covered the waterfront. And you know why? Because Jesus knows his church and he cares about it. He wants us to deal with these things. So I wrote, this is a, you can see I'm really a high design artist. I'm moving to my end now, so just hang on with me for a little bit more. This was one of my epiphanies. I saw, this is the Lilbachian contribution to the study of the seven churches. This was an inspiration. It may be totally wrong, but I'm giving it to you here, okay? So I thought about it. Is there an implied sequence of life and death in the experience of these churches with their characteristics? If they really represent all of the churches and their distinctive permutations in the fallen world, are they related in somehow to each other in a morphology of what happens to churches, an unfolding of their lives? So think about this as halftime, and I'm drawing on chalk about a, at a football game, say, got to look out for this here, okay? That's why it's so poorly drawn. But let's start with the faithful, the faithful church, like Ephesus, faithful to the gospel, orthodox. There's a danger for them. They might let down their standards and sin, kind of like the church at uh, maybe Pergamum. And if they do that, they might compromise with the world, like the church in Thyatira. And if they keep doing that, they're going to become like the dead church in Sardis. Or the faithful church, if it stands faithful, you know what? There's going to be resistance. If you follow Christ, you're going to face some kind of persecution, criticism. It's inescapable if you're faithful to the Lord. It could be soft persecution or hard persecution. And yet... In the midst of our weakness, what do we discover? Jesus loves the humble to be raised up. He that is weak is strong. My grace is sufficient for you. That's why when the weak church 
realizes it can do nothing, Jesus said, yeah, but I've opened a door and nobody can close it. When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. That's the lifting up of those that have no place to turn except to the Lord. Oh, that beautiful quote from the sermon this morning. When you come to the footstool of Christ with authentic need, your master's ears are open to you. He hears the needs of his people. And that's when we become strong. And when we become strong, what happens? We're going to become faithful. But then we've got to watch out that we don't lose our first love. Okay? The persecuted church, the faithful church, you can see what happens. And there seems to be a cycle that when we move, every church must have started with faithfulness because the gospel was real. But something happened. What's the first thing? They let their standards down and began to let sin be part of them. And as a result of letting their standards down and let sin becoming part of them, which uh, we can think of as uh, Pergamum, they become like Thyatira. And if they compromise with the world, they become like Laodicea and be totally blind, or they just die. That cycle brings us to death. And so the question that I think those seven churches raise to us, are we in the cycle of being faithful to Christ, willing to suffer, knowing that in our weakness, that's when we're strong, and that restores the strength. That's something I'll talk about when we talk about the church in China. Now, what about this other cycle? We're a faithful church. Well, we don't want to fight that battle anymore. Well, let's be more like our community and just go with the flow. Let's just be content with ourselves. Everything's fine. That is a sure route toward becoming like Sardis, the church that's dead. Forms and buildings and liturgies, but no gospel, no scripture. Okay, so this is my conclusion. Uh, <clears throat> these types of churches are going to be considered in our five Sunday nights that I have with you. In the process, I plan to share some of my personal observations and experiences with these kinds of churches for my global ministry travels through the years, particularly with Westminster. Uh, Pastor John has given me the privilege to give you a little bit of a travel log and reporting on some of the unique things I've been able to do. So I've listed a bunch of these. I'll just read them and maybe these will be in teasers for you to come back because I hope to tell you about a lot of these, okay? Westminster Supreme Court case, how did it turn out? Ministries in China, Hong Kong, and Mongolia. Experiences in South Korea. Evangelism experiences in America with both Gentiles and Jews. Ministry and teaching in Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. Teaching in London and global church history conferences. American heritage ministries in Philadelphia and beyond. Gospel and cultural ministries in Indonesia. African American ministries in greater Philadelphia. Teaching in Sydney and Brisbane, Australia, as well as India. Ministry with Huguenot descendants in southern France. Witness given in Washington, D.C. and with military chaplains. Connections with Dr. Boyce's ministries that I've had some joy to do. And in teaching in London, Spain, Poland, Finland, Switzerland, and parts beyond. The only reason I'm going to tell you these things is because I want to use those things I've seen with my own eyes or experience to illustrate what we're going to be studying and say the church around the world is well summarized by this description of where the church is. 
And may God use it to help us to say, may we be a church that is faithful like Ephesus, willing to suffer like Smyrna, and knows our utter weakness because our God makes us strong with open doors that no one can close. And that will bring life. God help us if we're beginning to say, oh, we can wink at sin. Let's be more like the world. Let's just be content with ourselves and not rock the boat because that's a direction to die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study tonight. We ask that what you've given to us in these words would be fruitful in our lives. May our fellowship and reflection show your glory. Lord, we pray that we would be part of the spiritual renewal of the church, wherever we are, wherever we go. Lord, begin with our own hearts. For Lord, your word says that you're knocking on the door. You're on the outside. We are Christians, and you're knocking on the outside door of our church. We open the door and ask you to come in. Come in and eat with us and drink with us. Come in and have fellowship with us and make us to truly be your people. Lord, thank you for this gift of your word. We seek now your wisdom and guidance in these coming studies. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing one quick song and we're dismissed. Let's try 390, if you would, please. 390. If I can turn the light on. Let's stand as we sing. 60. 80. 87. singing together. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. Second verse. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power on the fourth may the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea him exalting self-abasing this is victory okay that's it um, first of all we want to make sure to I got up halfway through I sent a text message to the guys next door, and they shut the music down. So thank the general manager for that. All right. Uh, thank you all very much for being here. We'll pick up next week uh, where we left off. And uh, thank you, Dr. Lilbeck. We appreciate having you here. And God bless you all. Amen. Drive safe. Amen. Good night. Uh,
his name right now. Sissy's after Kira. 